who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Infected is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash infected. Chapter 28. The Bathroom Floor. Again. For a moment, Perry slipped back in time. He was 17. His mother crying, as usual, shaking him gently. Perry opened his eyes, feeling the pain roaring through his brain, fingers touching the back of his head coming away with blood. His dad sitting at the kitchen table, drinking steadily from the bottle of wild turkey that he just used as a weapon against his only child. The bottle wore a small streak of tacky blood, half on the label, half beaded up on the glass. Jacob Dossie stared at his son, his cold eye fixed in their permanently angry stare. How you feeling, boy? Perry slowly sat up, his head throbbing so bad he could barely see. Someday, Daddy, Perry mumbled. Someday, I'm going to kill you. Jacob Dossie took another swig, his eyes never leaving his son. He set the blood-streaked bottle on the table, then wiped his mouth with the back of his dirty hand. You just remember that it's a violent world, son, and only the strong survive. I'm preparing you is all. Someday you'll thank me. Someday you'll understand. Perry shook his head, trying to clear his thoughts, and found himself lying on his own bathroom floor. It wasn't nine years ago. He wasn't in Sheboygan. Daddy was dead. That chapter of his life was over, but that didn't make his head feel any better. His face felt crusty and squishy on the linoleum. The scent of bile filled his nose. It didn't take him long to figure out why. His rebellious stomach had apparently found something else to cough up while he was passed out. A little shiver tickled his soul. It was a good thing he'd been lying face down, or he could have choked on his own vomit, just like Bon Scott, the original lead singer from the band ACDC. Bon had passed out in the back of a black Cadillac, so the story went, bombed out of his skull on whiskey and perhaps a few other controlled substances, so blasted he couldn't wake up. He drowned in his own puke. Perry wiped his hand across his face, scraping away vomit slime. He had some in his hair as well. 
His stomach felt tired, but otherwise fine. The regurgitation festival was apparently over. Most of the awful smell emanated from the toilet bowl. Perry laboriously sat up and flushed. How the hell had this happened? Vague, out-of-focus pieces flitted back and forth across his brain like moth circling a streetlight. His left egg ached with a cold iron throbbing. Using the counter to pull himself to his feet, he slowly stood. His whole body felt very weak, which made him wonder how long he'd been unconscious. In the bathroom, with the door half shut, there was no way of telling time. Sunlight could not reach down the hall. Resting his weight against the sink, he looked at himself in the mirror. Look like shit couldn't describe it. A green-yellow film of vomit caked the right side of his face, matting down his hair. A black and blue bump on his forehead stuck out like a unicorn starter kit. The dark circles under his eyes were so pronounced they were almost comical, as if he were wearing overdone movie makeup meant for an extra in Night of the Living Dead. What really caught his eye wasn't his face, but the dried-up crap all over the mirror. Rivulets of some odd liquid had dribbled down the glass, then dried in black streaks. Papery chunks of grayish matter clumped on the mirror like old paste, or perhaps a smashed insect. Only it wasn't an insect, and Perry knew that. Memories of the mess on the mirror jostled his fuzzed-out, pain-fogged brain. He didn't know what it was, but he knew that it was evil. The thing was death, something to be very afraid of. At least it had been something to be afraid of. He needed some Tylenol, and he needed to wash this filth from his body. Even reaching down to turn on the shower made his head pound. He couldn't remember the last time he'd hurt like this, or if he'd ever hurt like this. Doctor time, he mumbled to himself. Fucking doctor time. Perry headed to the kitchen for some Tylenol. He moved slowly and carefully, holding his head as if he might stop his hammering brain from falling onto the floor. He looked at the stove's digital clock. 12.15. It took his head a thudding minute to get the picture and he actually asked himself how the sun could be out at a quarter past midnight, then realized his stupidity with a small sigh. It was 12.15 p.m., a quarter past noon. He'd slept through work. There was no way he could go in, at least not until his head felt better. He told himself he'd call in and try and explain things, but only after a shower. The Tylenol bottle sat in the microwave, right next to the wooden cutlery block that held the knives. His eyes rested, on the chicken scissors. Only their black plastic handle showed, but hidden inside the block of wood were the scissors' thick, stubby blades that could easily cut through raw meat as if it were paper and chicken bone as if it were a dry twig. They held his fascination for a moment. Then he reached for the Tylenol bottle. He tossed four pills into his mouth, made a bowl out of his hands, and gulped tap water to swallow them down. That done, he shambled back towards the bathroom. He stepped into the steaming shower and basked in the spray, tilting his head to let the water wash the slime from his hair and face. The stinging hot water revived his flaccid muscles. The fog in his brain lifted a touch. He hoped the Tylenol would kick in soon. His head hurt so bad he could barely see. Chapter 29. Motivation. Dew refused to cry. Just wasn't going to happen. It wanted to come out, and he had trouble fighting it back, but no way in hell. He wasn't in this business to make friends. It hurt, sure it did, but Malcolm Johnson wasn't his first friend to die in the line of duty. 
But how much of this did he have to deal with? How much could he take? How many more people did he have to see die? How many more people did he have to kill? He sniffled and wiped his nose with the back of his hand. He needed to reconnect. Dew picked up his small cell phone, the normal one, and dialed. It rang three times before she answered. Hello? Hi, Cynthia. It's Dew. Oh, hi. How are you? Her words carried history, decades of backstory, if you will. Dew and Cynthia had hated each other once, hated each other with a passion that went even beyond what he felt for the enemy during a battle. That hatred was born out of love, all-encompassing love for the same person. That person was Sharon, Dew's only child. Tell you the truth, I've been a lot better, a lot of times. But don't tell Sharon that, okay? Sure thing. You want me to put her on? Please. Hold on a sec. They would never, ever be friends, he and Cynthia. But at least they had respect for each other. They had to, because Sharon loved them both. And when Dew and Cynthia fought, it tore Sharon apart. It had been hard to hear that his little girl thought she was a lesbian. But that was nothing compared to the pain and anger he felt seven years later when he heard Sharon and Cynthia were more than partners. They had performed some union ceremony or what have you, and they were basically married. Wife and wife. He'd raged, screamed at them both, called them names he wished he hadn't. Cynthia, of course, had screamed back. She wanted to protect Sharon. Do understood that now. Cynthia also happened to despise men in general, especially gruff, bossy, unemotional military men, which happened to sum up Dew Phillips in a nutshell. But Cynthia's constant attacks on Dew, both when he was there and when he wasn't, took their toll on Sharon. Dew hated. Cynthia hated. Sharon just wasn't wired that way. Sharon loved, pure and simple. It took another two years after the Union bullshit, but Dew finally understood that this was the real deal for his daughter. This wasn't a passing fancy. She was going to be with Cynthia for the rest of her life. Once he came to that realization, he did what any good soldier would do. He sucked it up, and he got the job done. He'd met Cynthia at what they both called the SDMZ, or the Starbucks Demilitarized Zone, and they agreed on an uneasy detente. They could hate each other all they wanted, and nothing could change that but they agreed to be civil and to treat each other with respect. And over the years, in the process of being civil, he came to understand that Cynthia was a good kid. As far as bull dykes go, that is. Hi, Daddy! Sharon's voice, unchanged from the time she was five. Well, that was bullshit and do knew it, but that's exactly what his ears heard every time she talked. Hey, sugar, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm so glad you called. How are you? I'm tip-top. Couldn't be better. Work's going well. You're still doing that desk job, right? He heard the worry in her voice. They're not making you go on the field anymore, right? Of course not. At my age, that'd be crazy. It most certainly would. Listen, sugar, I only have a minute. I just wanted to call and hear your voice. Well, here it is. What are you coming to Boston again? I want to see you. We can go out. Just you and me. Dew swallowed. If a gutted Malcolm Johnson wasn't going to make him cry, he sure as shit wouldn't let the waterworks go over a phone call with his daughter. Come on, sugar. You know I'm okay with Cynthia now. We'll all go out, spend some time together. Dew almost laughed when he heard Sharon sniffle. Whereas he could hold back tears seemingly forever, she cried if the wind blew funny. Yeah, I know, Daddy, and you have no idea what that means to me, what it means to us. Oh, stop with the crying already. I gotta go. I'll talk to you soon. Bye now. Bye-bye, Daddy, and be careful. You might get a splinter from that desk. Dew hung up. 
He took one deep breath, and then the emotions faded away, pushed back to their normal hiding place. That was what he needed, to reconnect with the why of what he did. It was for her. It was for a country in which his daughter could live as she pleased, even if that meant living with another woman, even if her father hated it and hated her mate with all his heart. There were many places in the world where Sharon would have been killed, or worse, for doing what came naturally to her. Was that cliche? To keep on fighting and killing when need be because America was the greatest nation on earth? Probably. But Dude didn't care if the reasons were good, logical, or even cliche. They were his reasons. And that was good enough. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 30, Mr. Congeniality. Margaret, Amos, and Clarence Otto stood as Murray Longworth entered the commandeered office. Murray shook everyone's hands, then all three sat. Murray, of course, sat behind the big desk. What have you got for me? We got you a relatively fresh one this time. I trust that an unrotted body gave us some clues as to what the hell these things are? Margaret led the charge. It didn't stay unrotted for long. All the tissue is gone. Only a skeleton is left. It looks the same as the remains of Judy Washington and Charlotte Wilson. We have the liquefied remains, but I think we've learned all we can from that material. Before Brubaker fully decomposed, however, we were able to gather some valuable and disturbing information. First of all, we believe the growth isn't a modification of tissue, but rather it's a parasitical organism. Murray's face wrinkled in mild disgust. It's a parasite. What makes you think that? Just as with Charlotte Wilson's case, the growth itself was already decomposed. 
we could get nothing from it, but we found structures in the surrounding tissues that made us classify it as a parasite. The growths are tapped into the whole circulatory system, drawing oxygen and possibly nutrients from the blood. Murray stared at her, like a limestone statue just beginning to show the effects of wind, rain, and erosion. What you're telling me is that these triangular things are alive. They're not part of the victim, but rather a separate living creature? Exactly. So why are the hosts, as you call them, going nuts? We found excessive neurotransmitter levels in the brain. Neurotransmitters are substances that pass signals from nerve cell to nerve cell, allowing the body to communicate with the brain and vice versa, as well as allowing the brain to function. Dopamine and serotonin, in particular, were at extremely high levels. Excess dopamine is implicated in severe schizophrenia, and excess serotonin can cause psychotic behavior and paranoia. We also found extremely high levels of epinephrine and norepinephrine throughout the brain. These two hormones are vital to the fight-or-flight response, key in reaction to emergencies and perceived threats. They also cause some of the physiological expressions of fear and anxiety. When the hormones exceed normal levels, anxiety disorders are very common. Murray nodded with understanding. So these parasites make people go crazy by increasing neurotransmitters? Right, but there's more. The parasite grows structures that mimic human nerves. We found such structures in the area surrounding the growth, but we found traces in the brain as well, particularly in the cerebral cortex and the limbic region. What's the limbic region? It's a cluster of areas including the thalamus, the hippocampus, and the amygdala, among others, that is thought to control emotion and comprise the basic structures for memory storage and recall. The growths in that area may have been some kind of endocrine system for secreting the excess neurotransmitters. Based on the case studies of excess dopamine in the limbic region, hosts may develop extremely acute paranoia. That is consistent with the behavior observed in Brubaker, Blaine Tannerive, Gary Leland, and Charlotte Wilson. But if the growth was artificial nerves, it may have had another purpose. It's possible the parasite was somehow wired into the brain. Anger flashed in Murray's eyes. Oh, come on. I agree with your drug delivery theory. That just makes sense. But wired into the brain? What are you saying? That this isn't just some chemical overdose? That the parasite is somehow controlling the host? It is a possibility. Why don't you just tell me the hosts are possessed by evil demons, Dr. Montoya? I'm beginning to suspect I made a serious mistake by putting you in charge of this. How the hell can you expect me to believe a parasite can control people, make them do all these horrible things? We didn't say the parasite used people like some kind of robot. However, there are parallels found in nature where parasites modify the host's behavior. For example, there's a trematode that parasitizes a species of mud snail. To complete its life cycle, the trematode must pass from a snail to a sand flea. The trematode larva somehow forces snails to high ground, out of the water, where the snails will die. It makes them commit suicide, if you will. At that point, the trematode exits the snail and enters a flea. Think also of the thorny-headed worm, which starts in a cockroach and moves on to a rat. To facilitate the change, the worm actually makes the cockroach less aware of danger, so it's more likely to be eaten by a rat. Then there is the- Murray held up his hand, cutting off Amos's next example. I get the point, Doc. That's riveting stuff. Really it is. But snails and fucking roaches are a hell of a ways away from human intelligence. Behavior is merely a chemical reaction, Mr. Longworth. Human behavior involves more complicated reactions, but they're reactions nonetheless. And if a snail or, well, as you so eloquently put it, an effing roach, can be manipulated, then so too can a human. Murray rubbed the bridge of his nose, as if some monster headache pounded the inside of his skull. You know, I came here hoping for some good news, but this just gets worse every second. Okay, so someone out there has created a parasite that can manipulate human behavior. 
When the hell are you two going to give me something I can use? Mr. Longworth, this is something incredibly advanced, Margaret said. Her voice grew cold and angry. This man wanted simple answers, yet there were none to give. We're talking a high degree of technological superiority. If it is an engineered organism, someone out there is so far ahead of us, it's difficult to conceive. To put it another way, if this parasite is engineered, we're in a lot of trouble. Murray scowled. It was clear that additional complications were not welcome. What do you mean, if? I suspect, and I should note that Amos disagrees with me, that this psychopathic behavior may not be intended, but is actually a side effect. The possibility remains that this is some kind of natural parasite, or if not natural, then it was not specifically designed to make people crazy. Murray shook his head, then stared at the plaques on the wall. It's a weapon, Dr. Montoya, and a damn good one at that. Don't make this so complicated you can't see what's blatantly obvious. You handle the chemicals and such, and leave the strategic analysis to me. Now I need ideas from you on how to fight this thing. Do you have any suggestions? Actually, Margaret had several suggestions, most of which involved a sledgehammer and Murray's ass. But she kept those to herself. There are a couple of things we need to do. First, we need to expand the staff. We need some psychiatrists on board. Why? All the hosts have shown severe behavioral disorders. If we're going to learn how this thing works, we need a living host. We need a bigger staff and we need it quick, particularly a neurobiologist and a neuropharmacologist. A psychologist might help us figure out how to handle the deranged victims. And in the long run, we need to learn how to combat the parasite's effects, possibly with drugs that modify behavior by countering the neurotransmitter overdose. I don't think adding staff's a good idea, Margaret. We need these people and we need them now. We can lose control of this at any second. Information control is one thing. Letting a plague break out on our watch is another. Murray's fingers drummed the desktop. Fine. I'll start looking for people. I don't need to tell you again just how secret this whole operation is, so I'm not going to have someone for you tomorrow or the next day. What have you got for me that I can use now? Brubaker had a small growth with colored fibers growing out of it. The symptom is consistent with a condition called Morgellons disease. We think that the fibers are a parasite that died, but parts of it keep working. The fibers are made of cellulose, a material common in plants, but not produced in any way in humans. Are the fibers conclusively connected with the triangles? They are. The structure of the triangles is the same material as the fibers. It's cellulose. There's no way it's a coincidence. And if you have the fibers, Murray asked, then you have the triangles. You're going to go psycho. No, that's not the case. It seems people can have the fibers and not develop the full-fledged parasite. And we haven't seen the triangle growth before? Not before the last few days? The CDC doesn't have anything on it? Not that we know of. That doesn't mean there haven't been any or aren't currently more cases. They may have existed. We just didn't find them. So these fiber thingies have been around for a few years, but the triangles are new. Sounds like whoever's making the weapon is getting better at it. Margaret swallowed. If she was going to get her way, now was the time. The CDC may have information on Morgellons, including potential timelines of the condition and maps of people claiming to have this disease. We need to talk to Dr. Frank Cheng, who's leading the investigation. Murray leaned back in the director's chair and looked up at the ceiling. We can't get the CDC involved, Margaret. That's why I lifted you out of that organization. We have to talk to this man. It is possible they have a database on this. If we're lucky, they're tracking symptoms, dates of infection, and other data that could potentially lead us to other parasite victims. I can't allow it. You will allow it, Murray, Margaret said. Murray's gaze lowered until his cold eyes locked with hers. She couldn't stop now. She had to see it through. I've played this how you want it so far, but I will talk to this man with or without your permission. She expected a huge fight, a battle of wills, but Murray just sighed. All right, you can talk to him, but you cannot, and I repeat, just to be perfectly clear, 
cannot tell him about the triangles. Deal? Deal. Find out what they've got. And I'm giving you executive order clearance on this. Otto, make a call of the CDC director. Dr. Cheng will cooperate with Dr. Montoya, and he doesn't need to know why. Yes, sir, Otto said. He smiled at Margaret. It was a small smile, but she couldn't miss it. Okay, Montoya, you get your little chat. But if that doesn't turn up anything, we need alternatives. Give me something to work with. The excess neurotransmitters create a biochemical disorder. Based on what we've seen of the living hosts, they suffer symptoms of paranoid schizophrenia, possibly complete with intense hallucinations. Based on reported behavior, the host paranoia is quite acute with elaborate threats and conspiracies. But I'm sure that doesn't just happen overnight. There's probably a build-up process, an amplification of paranoia. These hosts may be looking for help in the early stages, but according to what we've seen in the five known cases, they are very suspicious and tend to stay away from institutions like hospitals and doctors. We have to make ourselves available to these calls for help. And how do we do that? We could run ads in the paper, vague ads, things that might appeal to the host's paranoid nature. But it wouldn't attract attention from anyone else. Perhaps uh, business names with triangle or something like that, something the host would see and instantly associate with. Paranoids construct elaborate fantasies about the world around them. If we play into likely fantasies, we might draw them in. Murray nodded. Newspaper ads are good. It'll take a little time to create a fake business, and we have to avoid anything unusual that might draw the press. But we'll get it going. What other ideas do you have? Otto cleared his throat. Mm. Excuse me for interrupting, sir, but most people don't get their news from papers anymore. They get it from the internet. You can set up a web page and have it indexed so the major search engines will find it. The net is anonymous, so a host might surf it for information on the gross. They can contact you right from the web page. Murray's nod picked up speed. Yes, yes, I see your point. I'll get people on it right now. We'll come up with some different ways to attract the hosts. What else have you got, Doctor? That's about it, Margaret said. The triangles decompose so fast we haven't been able to get a good clean look at one. We either need a live host or one that's only been dead for an hour at the most. And I stress, Murray... They need to see a live host above all other possibilities. That's the only way we're going to learn more. What was all that damn banging? Connie Dolan just wanted to sleep. She'd wanted to sleep simply because she could. Finals were over. She'd busted her buns on them. Maybe pre-med came easy to some people, but not to her. Sounded like a hammer pounding nails. She groaned as she felt for the clock sitting on the floor. Since the mattress was also on the floor, no box spring, she just reached her hand straight out. Finding it, she looked, and groaned even louder when she saw the time. 8.45 a.m. So much for her ambitious goal of sleeping until 1 p.m. Who the hell was pounding nails inside the house at a quarter to nine? Finals were over. At last... Nothing to do but sleep. There was no way she was going home. Couldn't afford the flight back to Sydney. Mom and Dad were thinking of coming out to see her, but that cost too. And even with the scholarship, most of her parents' extra cash already went to the wonderful University of Michigan tuition. Sure, she missed them, and they missed her. But like her dad said, she only had one chance to get an education. Still, it wasn't so bad. She had David. Connie rolled over to find an empty pillow. David was gone. Maybe David had gone down to stop it. Or, more likely, whatever they were doing, her little nerd boyfriend was jumping into the fun with both feet. In a perfect world, 
He'd be out getting her breakfast to share in bed. He tried to do stuff like that, but he rarely made it more than 15 feet before something distracted him and he forgot all about it. She rolled over and curled up in the blankets and tried to go back to sleep. God damn it! She threw the covers off and sat up. Cold air bum-rushed her warm skin. Shivering, she threw on her green bathrobe and gray bunny slippers. Connie stormed down the hall, stomping all the way. Five roommates, and whoever was doing this was going to get an earful, even if she had to give five earfuls. Even if it was six, because David was probably in on it too. No way you pound nails before nine fucking clock in the morning after finals. She stepped over an empty pizza box outside Soon's room, which made her even matter. Because for some reason, the stupid girl thought this shared house was some kind of hotel and she could put her trash outside her door and leave it for days on end, no matter how many times Connie told her to knock it off. Just before the stairs, she walked past Git's room. At least he had the courtesy to shut his damn door. Kid was always weird. It had gotten a lot weirder in the last week, hiding in his room, painting away. Connie pounded down the stairs to the living room. God damn it! She screamed on the first three steps, each step a syllable. They needed to know she was coming. Oh, yes, they did. Each stomping step generated another syllable. Who the fuck is pounding nails at? She looked into the living room, and her voice trailed off before she finished the last two steps. Her hand shot to the collar of her robe, pinching it tight. Two nails sticking out of his mouth, left hand leaning on plywood, right holding a hammer. Get Gwyn looked over his left shoulder and right at her. He was the one doing the pounding, driving nails into sheets of plywood that blocked all the windows. He had a thin rifle slung over his shoulder, its green canvas strap digging into a loose white Wolverine's t-shirt. But that wasn't all. To his right, deeper in the living room, were three people. Three people duct-taped to chairs with thick strips of the silvery tape over their mouths. Their eyes were wide open, terrified, pleading for help. Soon, Nikolai and David. Her, David. She paused there for two full seconds, a brief but long time of no thought, no reaction. Then David threw his head forward and screamed into his duct tape gag. His eyes narrowed as he did, in anger and frustration and fear, narrowing in a way that said, Connie, run. Get calmly put the hammer in his belt. Almost in the same motion, he slid the rifle strap over his head, put the wooden stock to his shoulder, pointed it at David, and pulled the trigger. It sounded like a cap gun. Had to be. This was all fake. Had to be fake. Had to be a cap gun. Had to be fake. But the blood on David's forehead, the way his head snapped back, the dull fear in his wide eyes, that wasn't fake. Git pulled back a lever on top of the gun, then fired again. Another hole in her boyfriend. This one, under his left eye. David twitched once, then his head lolled forward. Blood streamed out of the hole in his forehead, sputtering just a little, then pouring out like red oil draining from a car. Soon scream, muffled by the duct tape. Nikolai scream, louder, deeper, more enraged, also muffled. Git swung the barrel towards Nikolai. Connie turned and sprinted up the stairs. She made it only two steps when the gun went off again. 
Nikolai's scream changed from fear and rage to fear and pain. Two more steps. She heard the thing on top of the gun ratchet back. Two more steps, and another shot. Nikolai stopped screaming. She took the remaining six steps two at a time, but it wasn't fast enough to block out another ratcheting sound. Another shot. Soon didn't scream after that one. Get must have killed her on the first try. Connie sprinted down the hall, past the pizza box, and into her room. She heard Get's footsteps rushing up the stairs as she shut the door. She slid the little slider lock, staring and blinking at it for unknown seconds, her freaked brain unable to process the information fast enough. That won't stop him, she thought. The tiny slider lock was barely a quarter inch thick. It was rusty, covered with 15 different paint colors that had hit the brass in sloppy little streaks over the years. She was going to die because of a stupid, cheap lock. Footsteps pounding down the hallway snapped her attention back to reality. The window. The fire escape. She ran to the window as her door rattled hard. Connie let out a little scream, but her hands kept working. She yanked at the window, pulling at the old wood. She'd always had David open the sticking window, or Nikolai, or sometimes even Git, because the fucking thing was so damn hard to open, and who opened it in the winter anyway, so it hadn't been open in at least a month, goddammit, open faster, open faster! The door slammed again. Something whizzed by her head with metallic ringing. The lock. It had ripped right off the door. Connie kept yanking, didn't turn around, couldn't turn around, she had to get the window open. Something hit her from behind. Her face and hands crashed through the window glass. She felt light stings on her skin and a sharper pain in her right eye. Hot wetness on her face contrasted against the freezing winter air that gushed across her skin and down her now-open robe. Strange motion. She didn't know what was happening. The room seemed to twirl around her, and then she was on her back. The sound of crunching glass. First, she was rolling on it, then sliding through it, sliding towards her feet. No, someone pulling her feet, pulling her out of the room. Connie opened her eyes. Her eye. She couldn't see out of the right one. She slid across her room, then the hall. She could tell because the sounds changed, echoed more because of the high stairwell. Her hands weakly reached to her right eye and felt the thin glass shard sticking out of it. Sliding stopped. The sound of a door opening. Sliding again. Her eye. Her eye. Her eye. Oh shit, she had to get to a hospital. Could someone please take her to a hospital? A lurching left, then right. Sitting. In a chair. A metal chair she could tell from the coldness on her ass and thighs where the robe had bunched up behind her and exposed her skin. David had always loved her skin. Another sound. A hissing, stretching sound. A tearing sound. Something on her hands. Then the sound again. Now something on her feet. Wake up, Connie. Wake up and run. She tried to wipe the blood off her face, but her hands wouldn't move. She opened her left eye, blinking away the blood that poured in and around it. Git Gwyn, standing in front of her. Rifle slung over his shoulder. Roll of bloody duct tape in his hands. Connie pulled with her hands and feet, but neither would come free of the metal folding chair. She saw the room through one bloody eye. Paintings and sculptures everywhere. Paint, materials, clothes, blanket towels, food wrappers, pizza boxes. Gets room. A strong hand on her jaw, turning her head. Looking right at him, his face only inches away. He looked calm. 
like shooting three of your roommates in the face and grabbing a fourth and putting her through a window and putting out her goddamn eye and taping her to a chair was really no biggie. If she could have been any more scared, his calmness would have driven her to that level. But her terror was already beyond redlined. What did you tell them, Connie? He said. He'd always spoken perfect English with the full American accent, not a trace of his homeland in that voice. His blood-smeared fingers remained on her jaw, squeezing hard, so hard her lips were pressed open and she couldn't put them together to properly make words. What? What? was all she could get out. Git looked away, just a little. No, not away. He was looking at her right eye. That looks really painful. Let me get that for you, Connie. He didn't take his hand off her jaw as he dropped the duct tape, then reached up out of her line of sight. His hand twitched. Pain blasted through the right side of her face. Not just the eye, her whole face. She tried to pull away, but still he didn't let go. Now he squeezed even harder. Had he jammed it in farther? Oh God, it hurt, it hurt, it hurt. There, is that better? He held the shard of glass in front of her left eye. Clear broken glass, reflecting the room's light through smears of her blood. It was all too much, and Connie Dolan started to scream. Which was a mistake. Get looked disappointed, if only for a half second, a single heartbeat. Then he reached down pulled free a strip of duct tape, and placed it over her mouth. You shouldn't have screamed, Connie. They don't like it when you scream. Now they want me to punish you. He walked behind her. Thick snot filled her nostrils, and she couldn't breathe through her mouth. Sobbing, pain radiating through her whole head, Connie tried to force air out of her nose. She thought she might suffocate. Then something gave, and she was able to pull in a thin, whistling breath through her nose. Her body shook uncontrollably. The room felt so cold. Git walked around in front of her again. He was holding a power tool, like a big two-handed drill. It had a black rubber handle, gray body, and thick red end, scratched white sawtooth blade sticking out the front. The word Milwaukee was spelled out on the gray part, a lightning bolt under the word. On the red part was another word, Sawzall. He pulled the Sawzall's trigger. It made a metallic, whining noise, and the white blade became a blur of motion. You shouldn't have screamed, Connie, Ged said, louder this time, so he could be heard over the Sawzall. They don't like it when you scream. But she screamed anyway. You have been listening to Infected, book one of the Infected Trilogy by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, the podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. I bring you two episodes a week. Every Monday, I cover something from a wide variety of topics, covering everything from feminist faves throughout history like Audre Lorde, listener coming out stories, and other hot-button topics like toxic masculinity and the Me Too movement. 
as well as plenty feminist history, the good and the controversial. And then every Friday, I bring you a mini What's in the News episode to keep you up to date with everything that's going on today in the world. And with over 580 episodes available to you right now, there's plenty of good stuff to listen to. You can listen to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rage on. Bye. Bye.